Welcome back to Bacon Wrapped Business. This is Brad Costanzo, and today I am welcoming back a, a previous guest who was one of my favorite interviews and very well received by all my listeners. And we're talking about a topic that uh, if you've been listening for a while, you know I love to get into. And this is creative deal-making, acquisitions, buying businesses, and really shifting your mind to the possibilities of what can happen when you zoom out and you look at why we're really in business and why we are struggling and hustling so hard to, you know, to, to do this entrepreneurial adventure that we all signed up for. And there really is a, uh, a question that I think a lot of people don't ask themselves, which is like, why am I in business? Uh, am I in business just to make an impact? Am I in business for cash flow? Am I in business to make a living? And a lot of us think we have to build it from scratch. And a lot of us have realized that sometimes we don't. Sometimes we can buy one. And today I am very happy to welcome back Carl Allen and Adam Markley to the show from the Dealmaker Wealth Society. Gentlemen, welcome to Bacon Rat Business. Welcome back to Bacon Thank you. Rat Business. Good to yeah, be here. Glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And I've also got uh, one of my business partners and close friends, Adil Harchoi, on the phone. And Adil is a partner of mine in a venture where we are personally uh, doing deals and acquiring IT service businesses. And you, my uh, podcast subscribers, are the first to really hear about this. I have not been really talking about it too much in public. So I've brought a deal in not only as a close friend, but as somebody who we are actively doing what we are talking with Carl and Adam about today. So I'm really uh, looking forward to seeing where this will go. I know on the last episode, Carl, we talked a little bit about, you know, um, why buy, et cetera. And for all of my listeners who haven't had the privilege of listening to that yet, let's go into the, uh, I want to go into some of the, the introductions and the basics uh, about this and set it up. But then I want to kind of get into some more advanced topics and really talk to people who've kind of already thought about this and some of the resources that you guys provide for them. Cool. Awesome. Let's do it. All right. So as opposed to reading off a giant bio of the two of you, I'll tell my listeners a little bit what I know about the both of you. So I know Carl has done well over a hundred deals in his life. Uh, you came from the investment banking background, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah. And uh, I'll let you kind of give a, a little overview of your business. But then Adam, you recently acquired Carl's business, which I, I find also fascinating. You acquired Carl's uh, information uh, and education-based business around this. And you guys have really partnered up and taking Deal Wealth Maker Society to the next level. But if you want to give a little bit more color on your histories, just so that people know like, oh, wow, I really do need to be paying close attention to this. Okay, so I, I started my deal-making career <clears throat> in 92, so uh, almost 28 years next month. So I went through investment banking, uh, then did corporate M&A, and then I started <clears throat> deal-making for myself in 2008. So I retired from corporate life, decided to become a business broker, but ended up acquiring the business I was hired to sell, which was my first deal, and kind of really figured that this market was all about more psychology than numbers. So I started buying and selling my own businesses, built a portfolio. And then about four years ago, I started coaching and mentoring entrepreneurs that wanted to either buy their first business or buy other businesses and wanted to learn the proprietary system that, that I developed, um, built that business, did really, really well. And then I saw in Adam 
uh, an Agora, a, a partner, to really do two things, to really exponentially scale the business and really put a dent in the buying and selling marketplace to small businesses. And then I also saw in Adam a, a deal partner. So like you and a deal are partnering, Adam and I are partnering as well. We, uh, we co-founded a private equity fund last year and uh, we're having a lot of fun doing deals. So the cool thing about us um, is we're both teaching this stuff and doing this stuff um, in parallel. That's a that's kind of rare. I'm gonna I'm not gonna lie, <laughs> but that's yeah, good. That's absolutely. why I love having you guys on. Yeah, absolutely. And what what's cool is uh, you know the advantage of still doing while teaching is you're staying up to speed with what's happening in the market and how it's changing. Because as with anything, buying a business is a matter of what the landscape actually dictates, right? You and Adele, a deal are going into this for yourselves and and kind of full force. Uh, and you're going to see and live it and feel it as you try to navigate your own deal flow. In terms of my background, I, uh, I've got kind of the opposite of Carl. Carl started Wall Street. Uh, I started Main Street. So I started my career in accounting and finance, worked with a lot of small business clients and have pretty much touched it feels like every industry in some capacity. And, uh, and so I'm, at this point in my career, I'm good at two things. Uh, I can generally walk into any business and make it more money and uh, I can build teams to help execute whatever those ideas are. And uh, from there, it's just a matter of finding the right opportunities to plug in. When Carl and I got connected, uh, it's hard to say it wasn't anything less than a match made in heaven to some degree. Uh, but again, good deal maker, good deal maker combined. Uh, we've got good complementary skill sets that allow us to, to work together and grow together and build together. Uh, not just the, the training side of uh, the training business itself, which, as you mentioned, I acquired from, from Carl, but uh, for us to really partner up and launch our own private equity and begin to, to show and build what a scaled small business acquirer looks like in kind of a new way. And in a new age, uh, we're not the typical go raise a $100 million fund and and spend all your money on, on kind of bigger middle market companies. You know, our focus really is on the sub $10 million per year revenue range. And as Carl said, it's, it's more a game of psychology than it is finances, uh, but you gotta have acumen in both to some degree. And, and ultimately that's what we work to provide for people who are in the, the network. Um, and, and that's just important to us as we're, as we're doing this, we don't want to be just teachers. We want to be doers because one of them's a mission and a passion, right? We want to directly change the lives as, of as many people as we can through entrepreneurship and business ownership. That's a, that's a heartfelt mission that both Carl and I share. But at the same time, we're looking to the private equity for our own wealth creation from a generational perspective. And we see the opportunity there to be the moneymaker in scale while we, uh, we, we serve that dual purpose of, of really providing, providing people the path and knowledge and opportunity to either acquire their first business or if they already own a business, to do a bolt-on, to combine their business with another business, either a competitor, another complementary business that's got a similar client base, you know, or someone up and down the supply chain. And so you know, we wanna work with those people and try to help them expand and grow as much as we can. Right. And I am personally a member of the Dealmaker Wealth Society. I've got access to your materials and it's, I got to, I got to tell my listeners right now that if this is something as we're talking that intrigues you, um, 
the training in there is absolutely world-class. It's very, uh, it's, it's organized in a way that somebody who's never really a, done deals, who's never really understood this mindset and the, and the process, because it can be new, it can be intimidating. You guys have done a really good job of laying it back out. I know I refer back to it often and I go back and every time I kind of get out of my comfort zone, because this is one of those things that, I mean, I don't care how astute the entrepreneur is. This is an out of the comfort zone experience. It's been very, um, it, it, it's made me feel very good to go back in and go, oh, wait a minute. These guys actually have an answer for that question uh, in one of the training modules. So I want to thank you for putting that together. And there'll be a link in the show notes if, if folks want to check it out and, uh, and maybe explore this as an option on their own. But for those of, uh, for those entrepreneurs out there who are relatively new to this concept of buy versus build, I know you guys have some good foundational concepts. And I'd love for you to share it with some people because I love watching. I know how it happened to me when, when the epiphany hit and everything changed. Like once I saw the world this way, I couldn't not look at it this way. What do you typically tell people who are more of the builders in order to help them see this from another perspective as far as an opportunity goes? Yeah. So, so there's kind of three elements to this and, First, I'll, I'll give you some data. So in 2019, over 7 million Americans started a brand new business from scratch. Um, 96% of those businesses will fail inside of 10 years, according to a friend of mine, Michael Gerber, who uh, wrote the email. And there's, there's kind of statistics in different places, but, but generally between 80 and 96% of those businesses are, are going to fail. And when you think about it, there's, there's kind of, it's easy to understand, and it's what we call the no problem. So when you, when you start a business from scratch, you don't have a lot of stuff with you. You have no customers, no employees, no products or services, no equipment, no premises, uh, no cash, no cash flow, no credit, and, and more importantly, no, no kind of reputation and you know, depending on what you're doing, especially if you're in the B2B market, then having no reputation, it, it takes a lot for a, uh, a company to trust a completely brand new supplier. So when you acquire an existing business that somebody else has built, survived, but they don't want anymore, then you're inheriting all those different things. You have the customers, employees, products and services. And, and even if you want to innovate something new in the market, go and buy a business in a sector that's similar then you can innovate from within because guess what? You'll have cash flow that you can enjoy whilst you're doing it. You'll have employees that will help you in premises with equipment. And once you've built something, you've already got a bunch of customers that, that you can sell it to. So it's a much quicker, safer, and easier process. And we, we sum it up by you know buying a car. So if you if you wanted a Tesla, would you go to the Tesla would, would you go to the Tesla dealership and and buy one? that they've built and finance it through Tesla? Or would you go and YouTube and figure out how to build it, go and buy the wheels, the tires, the engine, the battery, the glass, the panel, the steering wheel, and then put it all in the driveway and think, you know, how the heck do I build this thing? No, you don't. You go and buy one that somebody else has built and you finance it through Tesla. So that's kind of the analogy um, that we use. But, um, but yeah, and what's also really interesting about the numbers, there's over 2 million small businesses for sale in America today. And a lot of that's driven by the baby boomer problem 
It's 10,000 retiring every single day. And a lot of them own small businesses. And a lot of entrepreneurs, they get bored and want to go on to something else and want to try and sell their businesses. Yet only one in 11, one in 12 of those businesses will actually ever sell. So what we're trying to do, Adam mentioned our mission, is we're trying to connect all these entrepreneurs that are going to risk their lives starting a business and connecting them to all of these businesses that are already for sale and go and buy one of those instead and use other people's money to finance the purchase. Yeah, and I, to, to tack ahead, onto that, yeah, to tack onto that, right? Um, you know, those are that's primarily for people who are in that start or buy kind of decision-making process. And most of them don't even realize they're, they're facing a decision. Their focus is on, hey, I got to make money. Say, I got to go make money online, right? Brad, you, you know all about this world. And so the idea is, right, these people are just like, I got to go make money online or I got to go do this thing. And so they're going to quickly slap together some research on how they can start their own little business, hang a little shingle up, whether it's literal or, or online and try to figure that whole thing out. And the reality is they just never realize there's a completely different path and a completely different option that can allow them to see, generally speaking, even better kind of cash flows personally than they could if they tried to start with a lot less of the, the hassle and frustration. And don't get me wrong, buying a business isn't like going to the store and, and buying a bike or going to a dealership and buying a car. It's, it's slightly more complex than that. But the challenge is you're going to go through all this work, pain, strife, et cetera, to start a business, long hours, limited rewards until you happen to get some momentum. And at that point, your relationships at risk, your, your, your friendships are at risk. So much of your, your personal life gets sacrificed because you're trying to ramp up in a way. Uh, because again, as Carl said, you've got nothing. You have no customers, no money, nothing. Um, and, and so for the people who, who don't have a business and are looking to start one to kind of get where they want to go financially, they're missing the biggest opportunity in the world out there. That's to go buy and establish one that already has cash flows, that already has customers, that already has staff to do the work. And, and by buying that business, you're leapfrogging the really hard part and you're leapfrogging the highest risk part, right? Where you run out of cash. It's the, it's the simplest answer in the world to the question is why do most businesses fail? It's because they run out of money. And if you buy a business that's already generating cash, uh, you're going to have a, a greatly reduced risk uh, of running out of money. And then the second thing is for people who aren't uh, what we call them broadly entrepreneurs, and it's not a negative term. It's these are people who want to be entrepreneurs. The people who are already business owners, right? They don't necessarily even think of a business acquisition as a way to grow their company they think about, we got to go hustle. We got to go build a marketing funnel that's going to drive leads in and then we'll convert them with our sales process. Or, you know, think about your average small little company. They're, they're putting little slips and value packs and mailers and keep on trying to get people if they're like a, a window cleaning company or a siding company or a roofing company. We've all seen those in our life. And the idea is those people sweat and hustle and grind to try to grow their business. And not once do they ever go, well, if I just bought that other guy who's doing the same thing as me and we just combine our companies, I've just doubled the size of my business effectively in a day, the day I sign the, the deal. And I don't have to worry about trying to hustle and grind on the marketing front. I've got more people, I've got more customers. And if they go and buy a complimentary business, 
you know, if you're a, if you're a landscaper and you go buy a hardscaping company, you have the similar client base, but you're doing different work. So you can cross sell and, and create synergies from a cost perspective, from a labor perspective, and then increase the revenue just by having already a captive audience, if you will, that's the baked in customer list from those businesses. And uh, so people who are already entrepreneurs and already business owners, uh, and this is exactly the situation, Brad, you and you and Adil find yourself in, is you guys are both business owners already. Why not leverage what you have already and put that to work in acquiring companies that fit synergistically into what you already have to grow and scale? And so, so ultimately what, what Carl and I really focus on there is, listen, it's a lot harder to start a business than it is to buy a business for both business owners and people who aren't already business owners. It's the better path for most of them. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, it's such a, a different way of looking at things. But then once your mind opens to that, it's kind of hard to look back at it. Um, one of the things that I'd love to hear from a deal here for a second, because we've got this unique opportunity where a deal really hadn't been, he's a business owner of a profitable business and he really hadn't been thinking in terms of growth by acquisition until recently. Uh, and I've actually never asked you this question, a deal, but when it comes to, when it comes to thinking about, well, a deal, why don't you go buy a business or buy a competitor? What are some of the either objections or like, well, but I don't know this or what about what, yeah. like, what are some of those things that kind of come to mind, like top of your head? Well, what about this? What about that? Yeah, for me, it's awareness, not knowing there's a, a whole different process that's the traditional one, which is basically you need to have a lot of money in the bank to be able to go do that. So for me, as somebody even being in the marketing for a long time and being in tech for a long time, I had no idea that this, this whole process exists. So therefore, that, that whole process of buying a business was very, um, it's very intimidating, so you're like, ah, oh, we're going to buy a business. You have to come up with, you know, if it's, a, if it's selling for a million, you need to come up with, I don't know, 20%, 30%, 40%, whatnot. So we did not know with all the options. And uh, it just sounds like too, too, too good to be true or it just takes a massive amount of money to, uh, to acquire. So, that was, the, so th that was the first thing that just the intimidation of the idea. But it, it makes perfect sense why you should buy something that's profitable, that's making money, then starting from scratch. Knowing what I know now, I would have done that in in beginning. <laughs> so, yeah, I think any seven years. <laughs> I think you've hit the nail on the head. I, I think it it is like anything in life. It's a skill that you have to master. You know, it, it's it's not the easiest thing in the world, you know, to to achieve. But uh, with with training and mentors uh, who have done it hundreds and hundreds of times before, um, it becomes a lot easier. And you know, one of the reasons why only one in eleven to one in twelve businesses, you know, don't sell is there's not a steady stream of buyers that A, to your point, truly understand the process and B, have the access to the capital um, that you need to actually do these deals. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the big gap in the market that Adam and I are filling by empowering entrepreneurs to become business owners or to grow their businesses by acquisition and giving them the systems, the frameworks, the tools and the access to capital to be able to do it. And one yeah, of the things that I love is the fact that there's so many ways to actually finance the purchase of a business without using money out of your own pocket, out of your own savings from doing leverage buyouts and using the assets of a business to finance the purchase of it, to 
just doing creative terms with the seller and understanding the seller psychology and understanding that there's money out there even for the down payment, even for that, like if you do structure a deal where it's 20% down, like a deal was saying, um, you don't, that doesn't mean that you have to go into your own savings account and write a check for 20%. There's a lot of different creative ways that you guys teach that it's one of those things that until you're even aware that that exists, you don't know what you don't know. And then it becomes a, oh my God, I never thought about that. I never thought about that. But we're in a, we're in a time right now, you know, this is, uh, I'm recording this on May 26, 2020. And, uh, it, you know, I think most people know what's going on in the world right now. Uh, COVID quarantine has created an entirely disrupted economy. Um, and I would really love to kind of steer this now towards what are you guys seeing in terms of ability to get financing and, uh, what are some of the pro the new and unique challenges that we're all working through in terms of business acquisitions? Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I think it is a really unique time in general. Uh, it's filled with uncertainty. No one knows what tomorrow will bring or the next day or, or let alone a month from now or two months from now. And I think it's what's important is you got to step back and you got to recognize what are the real fundamentals of, of, say, the company or the industry that you're looking for and targeting, right? You guys are brought, you know, you guys are targeting the IT services space. Well, those folks have seen nothing but an increase in work as a result of this. Everyone has been working from home effectively uh, outside of other kind of physical services. They've been broadly working from home in the, in that's driving a massive amount of demand from infrastructure and otherwise, right? Just the technology we're using right now to, to record the podcast is one where they've themselves seen a big ramp up, right? Uh, video conferencing, remote work, internet, bandwidth related issues are all changing. But that's By the not way, I heard that real quick, I heard that Zoom went from 10 million users in like February to the, at the end of March or April, 200 million. <laughs> Oh, oh yeah. it's spiked. Yeah, it's spiked. The VCs are happy campers. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't so, want to interrupt you too much on that train of thought, Adam. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the, I think the best part of the Zoom story, just to, to tie it off, though, is so Zoom's publicly traded, and uh, their stock has definitely seen a bit of an increase. It's gone, gone up roughly 50% or maybe 150%, somewhere in there. Not terrible gains. The best part of the story to me is there's another company, a really tiny little company named Zoom, and uh, their stock went up over a thousand percent until the uh, the, uh, the the listing. Uh, they yeah, they got that, that people thought it was the they, they thought it yep. was the Zoom comp, like videos. Yeah, because yeah, their stock their stock was a you know a single digit stock, sub ten dollar stock, and just exploded, and because uh, everyone was buying the wrong one. Um, <laughs> which is great that it wasn't very distinguished. So, you know, it absolutely skyrocketed until, uh, you know, New York Stock Exchange or wherever they were, were listed, uh, pulled them off just because of the, the, the misleading. But, you know, that, that stuff aside, right, it's, it's definitely been a unique time and it's, it's honed in. What's really critical, things that we all still need, whether we're out socializing in public or not, are we're always gonna need distribution and logistics, right? Stuff has to get from A to B. Whether we're remote or not, we've got to get it from A to B. And distribution broadly has never been more impacted, especially last mile distribution, right? 
Um, it's one thing if you're doing centralized distribution, but when we're all sitting at home, that last mile distribution is uh, a very interesting space. And then for people who are transitioning from physical locations to a, an internet distribution model, an e-commerce model, they're coming up with a whole bunch of new problems they've not had to figure out. What are shipping efficiencies? And any technology associated with that broadly is gonna be positively impacted. And then you've got obviously people on the wrong side of things. For example, these are the restaurants and, and, and retail locations. They're in a tough spot if they haven't found a good way to pivot. Uh, you know, Restaurants, for example, are, are mostly bent over the barrel, even if they are doing carry out and take out by the major providers who are doing delivery services. I won't name them or anything like that, but, but, but those guys aren't necessarily doing a whole lot of favors to the restaurant industry that's already been mandated in the worst way possible, right? But so we see tons of opportunity, right? And, and beyond that, construction projects are still happening. Infrastructure development is still happening. The, the country by and large still has to remain standing in many capacities. So we're seeing, we're seeing a ton of opportunity in that space. And I think most of the challenges related to this is, is then kind of tying to the question you asked around financing. Uh, the goal is to buy a business without dumping a bunch of your own money in it. Uh, not, all, not all business acquisitions will, will allow for that method, but you know, we're seeing a pretty big change on the traditional financing side. This is you going to your bank and getting a regular commercial loan uh, they're, they're really slowed down and banks just spent six, seven weeks slammed with paycheck protection program, right? Where they just doled out loan volumes. Like many of these banks don't even do in 12 months, let alone two years. Uh, it was a big fee success for a lot of them, but it crushed them. Their ability to evaluate any loans was paused. And then now coming out of it, they're not even sure what kind of deals they're willing to finance. Go back to the psychology. We mentioned before that these deals are more about psychology than they often are about numbers. What, what we're seeing in the market is a lot of sellers, and, and we saw this after 9-11, we saw this after the global financial crisis. I've seen this probably 10 times through my career, you know, coming out of different recessions and so on, is often these scenarios become like the, the straw that's going to break the camel's back. And you have a business owner that's built a business, son or daughter doesn't want to take it over, uh, you know, that they want to exit, they want to retire, or they want to do something else. Um, <clears throat> there's not a lot of buyers there that, that are going to take this business on. And often they just think, you know what, I just don't want to own this business anymore. And the psychology changes. And for a lot of them, uh, they're happy to sell the business over time. Um, you know, we can call it seller financing, vendor financing deferred payments, lease to buy. There's lots of different terms. But often a, a small business owner that still needs the cash flow every month, but doesn't want to go in and run the business, that's a perfect seller financing deal because you can pay them a split of the cash flow every single month um, as the business continues to trade. And what we find with the mindset of those business owners is, Adam mentioned the word pivoting. Some of them, they just don't have it in them to pivot. So for example, really good friend of mine, he owns um, an engineering company in England. And he called me right at the start of this and said, dude, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Um, my automotive manufacturers that uh, used to buy my components, they're not ordering anymore. You know, what am I gonna do? And I said, you know, dude, how quick and easy is it for you to pivot into the medical supply chain? 
you know, the whole world's crying out for medical equipment, ventilators, respirators, all these sorts of things. He said, well, I could tell that stuff like in 24 hours. I'm like, dude, jump on that. And now he's killing it. You know, he's making tons more money than he was making uh, components for performance motorbikes. It's crazy. Um, you know, there's, there's distilleries in Scotland that have pivoted to making hand sanitizer. And, and I think what we're saying is, you know, go and find a business like that where the owner doesn't want to make those changes, doesn't want to think outside the box. And if they've got the right distress seller mindset, there are ways you can creatively finance that deal where you might not need any financing externally. You can just buy it exclusively using the uh, the money in the business. One A deal that Adam and I closed before COVID, um, we, we bought a really good technology company in London, no financing. We just paid the guy the surplus cash that he'd been stockpiling in the business. That was his closing payment, if you will. And then uh, we're just sharing the future profits with him over a period of time. So uh, creativity in deal structuring is, um, you know, A, something we're very good at and B, something that's really, really important as a deal maker. Love that. And one of the things you mentioned um, too is, uh, and this is, I, I've got experience with this. This is a deal that I almost closed. I walked away at the very last minute, but it was a, it was a profitable walk away still because I ended up doing a consulting deal with him, but I was going to buy 80% of his business, um, which had seen a decrease over the past year or so in his, his it was a hundred percent owner financing was the original negotiation. And one of the things I noticed, and this was the way I positioned it to him, is listen, your your business has started to, to you know, you did like four million last year or the two years ago, and then last year you did like three point three. I don't really want to kind of come in and any money I would put into this business, I would I would want it to go to marketing if I'm going to put money in. But I noticed that you used to pay yourself like forty thousand dollars a month, and for the past year or so, you've been paying yourself twenty thousand a month. If I were to step in and just guarantee you 30,000 a month. Like that would, that's in essence what your payment would be. You'd be making 50% more, uh, still own 20% of the business. And I, and then you'll get to participate as I grow it, et cetera. But I'm not only stabilizing your monthly income, but I'm increasing it by 50%. Would you be willing to do that? And he immediately said yes, with no negotiation. So it just kind of shows that, yeah, by, he was already kind of worn out by this and by stabilizing his income, using the cash in the business, that was what got the deal done or almost did. As I said, I walked away for various reasons. I won't go into all the details right now, but uh, no, I think that's brilliant. I'd also, um, <laughs> I'd love to know, so I'd love to drill down you you mentioned with this tech company you recently purchased and we don't have to go into like the, the exact details, but you said something about, you know, paying him the surplus cash in the business and then letting him grow on top of that. Can you, you know, what more can you explain on it, as far as those terms go? Like, how does that work? So he, he obviously had X amount in the bank and cash, which was his money, no matter what. Um, can yeah, you explain so a little bit more details there? Yeah, you see that far more commonly in the UK than you do in the US in deals. And it comes down to the respective tax regimes. Uh, in the US, you would see it more commonly prior to the, the last major tax bill that was, that was done by Congress, which changed the corporate tax rate in the US. So in the US, um, ordinary income for a business in a, in a C corporation used to be at 
high, mid 30%. That's why most businesses are S-Corps and LLCs. Uh, they, they knocked that down to, to 21%. Uh, so in the US, you really don't see this situation. In, in the UK, you do. So in the UK, pretty much every business is taxed at the entity level. And they've got fairly onerous tax rates. And a business owner can take advantage of two things when they go to sell. Uh, one, they can take, take advantage of capital gains treatment for the proceeds of the sale. And so that tax rate's already a very steep drop from the, the, the ordinary rates that they're going to pay. On top of that, they have something called entrepreneur's relief, which prior to March of this year, the first $10 million of proceeds from the sale of your company would be taxed at only 10%, right? So that's a really favorable rate. So if you sold your business for $10 million, every single penny of your gain would be at 10%. And so companies were, were comparing and Carl can tell us the exact tax rate, what the gap is. I think it's in the, in the thirties, Carl. Um, so you've got someone who's paying say 35% uh, on the, potentially on their income. If they just store up cash in the business and take that cash out as a part of the sale, instead of paying tax at a 35% rate, they're paying tax at a 10% rate. So all of a sudden they're getting a big kind of relief on their tax bill. And so in the UK, it's very common for us to see these small little businesses, right? Say a business that's doing a million pounds a year in revenue, they might have 500,000 of cash in the bank that they've just stored up over time, anticipating at some point selling the business or exiting the business and being able to bring all that cash out in a very tax favorable manner. Uh, and that's exactly what happened with the deal we did where you know, it was a smaller company around a million or so uh, of revenue in, in pounds. And he had 600,000 of, of cash in the bank. Well, we didn't need $600,000 of cash to trade the business. So we kept a hundred grand and wrote him a check for 500,000. So yes, we paid him his own money that he earned, but he effectively got a 25% premium on the money. Uh, so it was a huge value to him. So he effectively made an extra 125,000 pounds on his own money just by structuring it in this way. And that's a huge wow. value. That really is. And it also goes to show you the, the benefits of start of like, as an entrepreneur of starting to learn stuff beyond just the how to generate sales and marketing, et cetera. Because when you start to understand little nuances like that, um, it, it opens the doors for really creative financing. And he, I mean, did he even know that? Did you guys bring that to him? Or was he already kind of aware that that would be a benefit to him with the tax? It was structure? part of the conversation during the negotiation process. Uh, we, we ended up, it was going to be a deal where surplus cash, seller financing, and then an earn out. Um, uh, he, he, he didn't want the lack of comfort with an earn out. So yeah. we actually reduced the value of the overall deal uh, and then extended the terms on the seller financing to be more favorable to us just providing him a full guarantee on what he, uh, he was getting paid from the business. And there's no personal guarantees on, on either myself or Carl or, or anyone else who's involved in the ownership of the business. So if for some reason things don't work out in the way we want, we just hand the keys back and say, thanks for, thanks for playing the game. So uh, We're staying a part of it. He's continuing to run the operational aspect. Uh, he's yeah. For a transitional period. Yeah. Yeah. How long, how long do you typically, if somebody, if you're buying somebody and they're transitioning out, is there kind of an, uh, a general average or rule of thumb to think like, okay, over the next year, six months, three years? I mean, I know it kind of depends on every situation, but have you? Yes. 
Yeah, I'll give yeah, it's the best worst answer in the world. It depends, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and, it can and the take problem is three months handover, it can take six months. It all depends on the requirements of, of the seller. I, I've bought businesses um, many years ago where the, the seller's wife had cancer and he needed to leave very, very quickly to, to take care of her. Um, so in those circumstances, then, um, you know, it's a short handover and you've got to plan for that in the deal. Um, but generally, you, you want at least 90 days because what you'll find, Brad, when, when you're buying a small business is if it's not really systematized like um, a deals businesses, then a lot of the processes, the SOPs, the customer relationships, it's all in the mind of the, of the business owner. So, you know, and often they, they don't really have a business. They just have a job in their own business. So you need a period of time to mine all that stuff and make the business function without them technically being in it. And then you could bring in a GM if you don't want to run the business yourself, a general manager, you know, have them transition and get trained up. So you're right. Every, every deal is different. You know, the, um, the mental, I try to pay attention whenever I'm starting something new or doing something, as I said, a little out of my comfort zone and looking at bigger businesses and some of the mental, um, I guess, hurdles, challenges, roadblocks, doubts, beliefs, or whatever that I have. Because I mean, I, I think this is part of being a, in marketing. Like I always try to pay attention to what's going through my head so that I can use it later. But, uh, you know, some of the stuff that I wrote down, I thought I would share with you guys, because I'm sure that a lot of people struggle with this as well. Um, and I, I probably know more than the average bear does about this stuff compared to most entrepreneurs in my position, because I've done small deals and I've studied this in depth, but I have yet to do like a big multi-million dollar deal. But I know some of those struggles are, you know, getting into momentum. Like there's the, the amount that you have to learn. It's not insignificant. It's not overwhelming, but it's not insignificant, right? Because you have to learn a new way of looking at this. You have to sometimes look, learn it, you know, understanding financials in a way that you've never looked at them before, because a lot of entrepreneurs, we just kind of, especially small ones, we just kind of get things going. We look at the P&L, we looked out at the net income or how much cash we're taking home and that's it. We ignore everything else as, you know, as a smaller business. Um, and then understanding the nuances of due diligence and understanding the, you know, all the different ways to potentially get a deal done. I know I've struggled sometimes with just getting momentum and figure it out, like start having conversations, get into it, you'll figure it out, you know, once you cross that bridge, which is, I think the way a lot of us build a business, like, you know, jump and what do they say, build a plane on the way down. And then the other part is because this piece crept up when I did my LOI for that initial business. And this was the first multi-million dollar business I ever did an LOI for. And then there was that moment of, oh crap, like now what? Like, I don't know what I don't know. And I don't want to make a mistake. Like I don't want to mistake, make a mistake buying something that could then end up costing me millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands or whatever. Um, and I know that those, some of those butterflies in the stomach that kind of pop up granted at the time, I don't even think I had like access to your, you know, resources, uh, you know, et cetera. But specifically that first question, because I guarantee there's some listeners and and myself included, like getting into momentum versus feeling like you need to learn everything. Like you can go through your entire course and, you know, there's hours of material in there. Like to what degree do I need to understand 
the specifics in there before most people like feel comfortable in taking that action and getting on the phone with sellers and starting to analyze deals. Like, what do you tell folks who are in that particular position? Yeah, I think there's, I think there's two things people have to, to, to be committed to. One is to take action, right? You'll never even encounter what momentum feels like if you don't take step one. This was Brad, you and I are on the phone, I don't know, a month or so ago. And we were talking about that and it's, going from being industry agnostic and having the skill set where you can work successfully in pretty much any industry in any business. And the challenge is you're in the middle of the field, you have no direction and you can go in any direction. You, you can run anywhere. And the problem is when you're rudderless and you're directionless, you can do anything. And it's hard to actually take action, you know, putting that first foot forward. So being able to, to take action doesn't necessarily mean running yet. It simply means making the decision of who do you want to be, why do you want to do this and what do you want to buy? Right. So Carl and I talk about this all the time uh, over in Dealmaker Wealth Society. We, we always talk to people about know your why. Why are you doing this? This is really, really important. Uh, and that's going to drive the rest of it. And you can't take any other action until you know why you're even doing it. The second thing is we always focus, stay in your lane, stay in your lane. So if you've got expertise in some area, stay in your lane, right? Uh, a deal's got an IT business. It would be really wise of him to focus on acquisitions that are in some way related to his core expertise. Because some of those butterflies and excitement you might feel, those can be mitigated by having a good network and a good team around you. But your ability to sit in front of the seller of a business and confidently talk about what their business is and how it works, have any kind of understanding of it, uh, you've got to be able to stay in your lane a little bit. Um, and then the final thing really of this kind of bigger two-part thing is one is to be an action taker, you have to know your why and you have to really stay in your lane. And, and then the second thing is you've got to, you've got to surround yourself with one, a good mentor or two, someone who, who's been there and done that. Uh, that's the only real way to, to, to escape that trapped circle of, I only know what I know and I don't know what I don't know. And if you can't escape that, uh, you won't be able to move forward. So finding a good mentor is important. And then that mentor is going to lead you to building out a team that ultimately supports what you do, right? This is a really good CPA or accountant, a really good attorney who, who, who knows what small business deals look like, right? You don't need the guy who's done 500 million, 1 billion, $10 billion deals. That guy is not going to be the great resource for you. You want someone who's done transactions, buy, sell transactions, that are in that sub $20 million range. They know what a small business deal looks like. They know how to right size their work and their fees and understanding for that small business owner. As you said, Brad, you're, you're pretty much just seeing how much is the checking account or cash account going up every month and there's, that's what I've made, right? There's a whole lot less nuance to, to what many of those businesses are doing, so. Uh, no, no one's expecting an entrepreneur to do every single part of, of buying a business. Your, your job really is to be the quarterback of the deal, you know, to even be the coach of the team. Uh, if you were buying a piece of real estate, you wouldn't do the legals yourself. You'd hire an attorney. to say when you're buying a business, they're qualified to paper the transaction. When you're looking at the numbers of the business, that, that due diligence process, um, you're not going to do that yourself. Either the financier is going to do it for you if they're backing you in the deal, or you're going to have a CPA go through the numbers and make sure that what you're buying is what you think you're buying. And, you know, for, for me, there's, there's really, there's three skills you need to master. 
if you want to buy businesses. You know, the first is you've got to really master your mindset. So Adam touched on it before. It, it's that different way of thinking. And it's really, when, once you know your why, it gives you the rocket fuel to kind of power you through when, when things get difficult. Um, the second thing, the second skill you really need to master is uh, the art of building relationships. This is a relationship business. The, the biggest mistake most business buyers make is only go to business brokers for deals like bizbuysell.com or Empire Flippers. And the best deals that I've ever done, the best deals that Adam's ever done, have come through our network and building relationships um, with the networks that we have. And then the third skill is we talked about negotiation. Um, it, it's the art of listening. I think Chris Voss in his book, Never Split the Difference, um, so recommends you listen three times more than you speak. And it's so true because when you, when you listen, you'll elicit clues from a seller as to what they actually want. And in a lot of cases, this is going to sound crazy. About 80% of people that sell a business, money is not their primary motivation. They want other things like protecting their legacy, safeguarding their employees, keeping the name of the business, keeping the logo of the business. I've had a deal where that happened to me. And once you understand what they really want and then you map your deal around that, often that can take away from some of the financial elements in, inside of the deal. Okay. I, yeah, that, that's powerful. Adam, were you just about to add something to that? No, I think uh, you know, Carl's touching on it perfectly there at the end where it comes down to relationship and being able to understand what the person across from you really wants and needs, uh, building that, that rapport with them. Uh, again, we, we're talking you know, about so many different scenarios here, but if we, if we use a specific, right? Again, going back to IT services where you guys are interested collectively and in, in potentially making acquisitions, You've got the technical know-how uh, to be able to speak comfortably and confidently and present yourself as a credible buyer in the industry. So that, that's a big old check checkbox. But then to really understand what the seller wants is, is, is exactly what Carl just said. Uh, you've got to learn to shut up after asking an open-ended question and just letting them talk. And these people love to talk. It's their business. It's important to remember that most sellers, if their business has been around for, for 15 years plus, they've spent more time with their business than they have their own children. Think about that. They're working in the business at least 40 hours a week, more, more likely than not, potentially even 50 or 60 uh, if they started it and grew it. And if it's a business that's been around 20, 30 years, this is no question the case. They've literally spent more time with their business in that environment than anything else in their life, kids included. And so when you go to buy that business, realize if you, any of you guys who are listening have kids, imagine selling your child. That's a pretty terrifying thought if you have a child. Imagine then as a business owner, you're selling something that they've put more heart and soul and work and effort into than they have potentially their own kids. And I'm not saying these are people who, who don't love their children. What I'm saying is just from a raw amount of emotional connectivity to their business, that's the power they have in connection with it. So for you to be able to sit there and listen and understand what their real motivation is and understand what's really driving them to sell, right? Uh, Carl and I talk all the time about kind of three questions to ask a seller. And the first one is so critical. Why are you selling? Just ask that question and 
don't talk for a long period of time. And if there's that awkward pause, let it hang. Let them continue telling the story because they're going to unpack a massive amount of value for you as a potential buyer and how you can serve their needs while protecting your needs as well. You know, for me, any deal, if I don't walk away a winner, the seller doesn't walk away a winner, and then any broker or intermediary, if there is any, uh, if everyone doesn't walk away a winner of all those parties, it's a deal not worth doing, right? And that's just really critical. Everyone has to walk away feeling like they got the right end of it. If anyone's burned, think about how you're going to struggle transitioning relationships, transitioning from an employee perspective or process perspective, right? If someone feels burned, they're not going to necessarily look to do it in a good faith way. And that creates a whole lot of problems. So, you know, as you've experienced where you walked away from a profitable deal, Brad, sometimes the right situation isn't the one where you buy the company. It's where you either continue helping them in some capacity or you just fully walk away. Um, and, and it's just important to realize that there are literally millions of businesses for sale out there. If you miss one opportunity, it doesn't mean the end of the world. Keep looking, keep hunting. Absolutely. Well, and as somebody, like I, I would imagine that there are some other consultants and experts and agencies, et cetera, who listen to my show. But I know for me, one of the powerful combinations there is I, I could either, I have two great options. Well, three, I could walk away. I could not help you. I could buy your business or part of it, or I could just consult with you. Like, so just by getting in the process of looking and having those conversations and trying to solve problems with win-win solutions, it yeah. can turn into amazing opportunities and vice versa. I always give advice to other consultants and agency owners that if you're helping somebody with, for instance, with their marketing, you should also be at least asking the questions. So big picture here, have you ever even thought about selling your business or what are your big plans there? Because it might, you know, consulting with somebody might end up becoming an acquisition or partnership opportunity and vice versa. Um, I want to change gears a little bit. I want to take this a little more specifically to, um, you know, one, one of the things that Adil and I are working on. Um, I've got a, just a handful of specific questions, but these are also applicable to anybody who's doing this. Um, so one of, the, one of the things I know about you guys, for instance, you know, most of the businesses that you guys look for to acquire, they seem to be... I, I want to call them real businesses. I want to say non-digital only businesses, like either physical or real world main street businesses versus a lot of the folks who are just buying like e-commerce or digital based businesses, right? So that is correct that you guys t tend to look for more non-online only. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, cool. absolutely. Absolutely. Because a lot when, of online businesses. Yeah. Go ahead, Carl. So I was going to say, when you talk about online businesses, there's this kind of two categories. There's there's kind of e-com businesses like selling supplements or Amazon type stores. We we don't tend to uh, focus on those deals. But then there's online businesses that are providing services, so like SaaS businesses um, and those different types of things. Yeah, is that what you mean? Yeah, typically because I know a lot of the people who in my circle that I work with are considered to some more digital marketers or digital entrepreneurs. Where I mean, and really most businesses have a degree of online presence and you can even be online 
like almost primarily online. I mean, to a degree, Adil's is. I mean, he's got a tech that goes out and yeah. does the servicing things, but a lot of the you know the business is generated from online methods, et cetera. He doesn't have a physical location; it's all virtualized. Yeah, so, so there's no issue. About. Yeah, there's no issues with, with companies like that. I think uh, speaking specifically to your network, right? These are people who by and large are digital marketers. Again, this is the the classic situation. Whether you're that little landscaper who's got a million dollar a year business and you're trying to figure out how to grow to 5 million. If you're a digital marketer running a consulting group or an agency or anything like that, you're in the same boat as that landscaper. It's hard to acquire customers, no matter what space you're in, whether it's online or otherwise, you know, typically for online things, what Carl and I stay away from is we stay away from any business where you don't control the customer experience. Right? So Carl mentioned Amazon businesses. They're great businesses for people who want to be in that space. For us, we're just not necessarily interested in them because at the end of the day, you don't actually control your customer's experience. And to do so puts your entire business at risk should Amazon jump into the middle of that and be unhappy with, you know, maybe you scraping uh, your customer data or something like that. That's just not something we're interested in. Right. Additionally, businesses are so heavily leveraged on like a single offer or a single kind of product or service so singular that they don't have any way to, to really sell it except, Hey, I'm going to take some cold traffic and run it through a funnel and then execute a sell and all that other stuff. Those are really risky businesses. If you're dependent on one, maybe two offers, because what are you losing by transitioning from the seller to the new owner? Is there a secret sauce? As you guys well know, copywriting in a digital marketing space is key. Are you losing some level of creativity or product knowledge or relationship with the customer base by making that transition? Those are just other different risks, right? That said, I'm not afraid to buy those businesses. Bought Carl's. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. I think, I think there's, you know, I think there's, I think there's opportunity there. I would just encourage people to be critical in how they approach it and think of it. Exactly. Uh, and I want to, and I want to build on that question. Cause I said, that's one of the reasons that, like I know that business very well. I know digital space from SaaS to information to you know e-commerce, et cetera. One of the things I don't like about it is there seems to be fewer moats. There seems to be fewer ways to defend yourself like versus if you have a service-based businesses, you're working with other local businesses. There's a degree of, of um, not anybody can just come in and immediately take your place in the search engine rankings or whatnot. Right? Yeah, like so so there's, there's big brother risk, right? It just takes yeah. Google or Facebook to come in and smack you uh, if you're driving your traffic uh, from either of them as sources. And if they're 70% of your traffic into your customer acquisition funnel, then well, whatever you just bought, the value just got decimated. Um, exactly. And, and there's a lot of risk there. Um, and I think, uh, again, I think it's different, right? A way an online business builds a moat is recurring revenue, right? Recurring revenue is incredibly powerful. It completely changes the dynamic of the lifetime value of the customer and what that looks like. So it changes how you can acquire customers and what your sales cycle looks. Uh, but again, our core is like, we traditionally prefer B2B businesses. B2B businesses don't have a ton of customer service expense in the same way a B2C business does. You know, a B2C business couldn't be like Facebook itself, right? Where you can go from nothing to a hundred billion plus mega company to obviously even higher. If you think Apple and Microsoft 
Um, Apple's a, a great example, a trillion dollar company that's born out of a B2C environment. You can have unbelievably incredible exponential growth. However, those are very few and far between if you think about the number of companies out there that are selling B2C type products exclusively online. It's not to say you can't be successful. If you've got the right skill set, have at it. Understand how you set those deals up has to be different and has to take into account risk variables you're just not going to see in a more traditional B2B business. Right. Plus, I love the fact that a lot of the folks in our position, a lot of the folks who are listening to this show, if they do come from a digital marketing uh, background, and I know, for instance, my, my skill set is tremendously valuable to a traditional business who, do, who hasn't been using things like this. So I think if, if folks are listening who have a digital marketing background, understanding that taking, learning how to do this and taking those steps and then applying them to traditional businesses um, can That's create- an amazing point, Brad. That is such a great point because what's really interesting, when, when you look at most small businesses, in the United States, most of them do little to no marketing. You know, and Adam mentioned before, what's the first question we ask? Why are you selling? Second question we ask is, how do you make money? How do you scale? What's your business development process? And they'll turn and say, you know, Carl, this is what's great about my business. We don't do any marketing. It's all repeat recurring customers and it's all word of mouth referrals. We've never done any marketing in our lives. So I, I love those businesses for, for two reasons. One, because you know you've got a really solid, stable cash flow base. Um, and it means that if people are referring them, it, they're more kind of raving fans and just customers. But then we know we go into that business and we implement some marketing. You know, we're going to exponentially grow that business over and above that truly solid base. And, and what we... We, we term that having a horizontal skill set. So when Adam mentioned before about, you know, stay in your lane, especially for your first deal, buy businesses in areas that you know and you understand. But the one exception to that is where you've got a really solid horizontal skill set that can add massive value and quickly to pretty much any business. And marketing is one of those skill sets. And if you don't want to buy a business and do that, to your earlier point, Brad, you can partner with that business owner and grow that business 50-50. So the consulting for equity type of approach, uh, you can go in and rather than get fees for doing that work, you can get a share of the business, a share of the profits. And then when you scale a business, because you're leveraging what your skill sets actually are, it's a win-win because the seller's going to grow the business. They're going to make more money in the future. You're going to make money as you do that work. And then ultimately, you can both sell it together or you can buy the seller out at a future point in time. So, yeah, I love it. One of the, um, one of the, the directions that Adil and I are taking right now, um, so this is more specific to what we're doing. I'd love your feedback. So uh, last week, Adil and I spent uh, a couple hours on the phone and I basically did due diligence on his business because I don't, I didn't understand it. And I'm lucky enough to have the ability to, you know, in partnering with Adil, I get to do due diligence, which I've done some to kind of understand the business and the operations and the finances and the marketing, et cetera, from his angle. Uh, one of the next things we're doing is uh, beginning a plan for reaching out and starting up conversations just with other people in that uh, market. 
Uh, a more specific question I had was when reaching out to people, uh, whether cold uh, and not so much through a broker, but I mean, maybe, maybe through a broker, but let's just say we've got people we're reaching out to. I have the ability because I, I have a company, Costanzo Capital. So it's, I, I've made everything from angel investments to acquisitions there, but it's completely agnostic towards the industry. Uh, I've got the ability to approach them as that kind of a professional investment group that um, is acquiring businesses. Got the ability to approach them as a somebody else in that business. For instance, a deals business looking to acquire. So uh, almost like a competitive, like a consolidation. Or we have the ability to approach them as, listen, looking to buy a company, like kind of a solo business owner uh, aspect. I was curious if you guys had any insight. There's, there's no one perfect answer, but any insight on what might get the most doors and conversations opened. Uh, and one of the reasons I asked that is a deal has forwarded me like 20 different emails. He gets emails all the time from people looking to buy a business. They're fishing, right? And I was kind of going through there and I was kind of like, hmm. And I've seen all of them, like all types. I'm like, huh, I wonder what feels the least, oh, what do you call it? Uh, yeah, I, I can't think of the word right now, but uh, what, what's like the easiest conversation starter versus the, like if somebody comes to me as like a, oh, I'm an investment capital group, almost like a PE company. I kind of feel like that's colder and less personal versus somebody in the, who's in the industry yeah, already. In the small business space, the the main thing you want is to be able to build a relationship. If you're coming in as just like a faceless equity group up front, you're going to limit yourself to some degree, I believe. I think it'll carry a little bit more weight if you're going through a broker or some other intermediary in that path. Um, but if you're directly reaching out to people, do so as you, the human. Do so as you, uh, hey, my partner and I, we're familiar with this space. It's a space we've operated and run businesses before in. So you're building your credibility, your industry experience a little bit. And here's why we'd be interested in talking to you. And to do that, you want to know, do your research on who they are, what they are. You know, we've all seen those kind of cold emails soliciting some kind of response. It's like three lines, clearly form emailed, all templatized, nothing custom, you know, they clearly grabbed your name and one thing from your LinkedIn bio or something like that. And that's it. Yeah. We just all delete those. They're going to do the same thing. And if you're sending the communication digitally, it's, it's just like an email you would to an email marketing list or something like that. It's got to have a subject line. That's going to get them to open and the content of the email has got to drive them to one action. And that's just to reply. Um, so you've got to put enough, uh, you've got to put enough of yourself in there for them to get a feel for who you are and, and why you're really there. And it can't look form. It can't look copied and paste. It has to be tailored. This is the kind of thing where you might spend an hour or two hours crafting an email and doing the right level of research on there. I'm really old school, Brad. I write to people. I write to people. And my goal is to build high levels of rapport from that initial um, letter and what what i do in that letter is is three things so i tell them who i am and what i'm looking to do the second thing that i do is i compliment them on their business what they've achieved so 27 years ago you couldn't do this but today you can you can go online and find out loads and different things about the business awards they've won uh new clients they've signed up all these different things and get really granular with that and then the third thing that i do 
is I find out something about the owner, um, whether it's on Facebook, LinkedIn, and, and I'll find kind of connections between my life and theirs, and I'll drop those things into that communication. So then when I follow up with a phone call, they know who I am, they know why I'm writing, they like me because I've been really positive about their business, and they feel a connection to me because there'll be things that I can talk about uh, outside of business. And you know, I never go into a call ever and start talking about business. I want to understand who they are, what, you know, what drives them, what motivates them. Do they have a family? How old are their children? And then I'll talk about my children. Do they play sport? Do they watch sport? What kind of wine do they like? Do those kind of crazy things. And you might think that's nuts, um, but it's all about building relationships and building rapport. And then once you've got that really dialed in, then it's a lot easier to have a meaningful kind of business and meaningful deal conversation. Right. Adil, I'd love for you to pipe in here because as I mentioned that you, you've shared with me a lot of the different emails that yeah. you've received. Now, granted, you weren't in the mindset of, I want to sell my business, right? So it wasn't like top of mind, oh, I'm just going to re reply, but you've replied to some of them. Did, did, did certain of them give you a feel more of like, eh, I'm not going to take that guy seriously, or I'm not, I'm not even interested versus other ones that kind of maybe yeah. did pique your curiosity? Well, I've seen the same template like Adam was saying over and over and multiple times. And actually, in fact, I called out one time, one person, I said, Hey, I, I know, I think it seems like you guys taking the exact same course. I think you guys should change this. And he got very, very defensive about it. And, but it's like, Hey, I'm in the marketing as well. So um, the idea when I get those emails, they're very, just like you met a chick at the bar and she's like, Hey, let's go home right now. So it was no, nothing else. It was just literally super offensive. And some of them just go into details in the first email. And that to me, that's a complete turn off. And I just decided, you know, I'm just not, um, the only time actually that I considered, uh, you know, opening and replying is when, you know, that idea of you, you negotiate when you don't have to, it's just to explore. So, and I start just going back and forth with them just to see what it is until they get to the, not, Hey, um, send us and not, we're going to send you a non-disclosure. And then that, that's where my conversation stops. But other than that, I just feel like they're just very templatized. Just like Carl too said, uh, there's not of that personal touch. There's no uh, just generic, hey, let's go, let's go home. Let's, let's go home right away versus let's build a relationship. And I love that. I love that. And that's, and that's, see, that's, I'm fortunate to have that ability to be able to tap into a deal's perspective as the business owner and do this. Yeah, I, know I, think, one of the I think the thing is, right, like as a business owner, just, feels like role play, but just role play. If I were to sell my company, who would I want to sell my company to? And think yeah. about things you would be concerned with, right? Write that list down and then realize that you as a buyer, you have to answer all of those things and be able to answer them cleanly and correctly. And you know, what would you be concerned about? Would you be concerned about your employees? Would you be concerned about, you know, what would you be concerned about? You know, what would you ask? Right. And, and everyone's got different, we'll have different lists there. And it's important you, you've got the capacity to understand that because as you go to buy companies, that's exactly the kind of thing they're doing. That's yeah. the same exercise they're going to go through on the spot live. And that's why, as Carl said, right from the beginning, you don't want to say, Hey, I'm going to buy your company. How much is it? No, that's not it at all. It's, Hey, who are you? Why, you know, how did you get here? Do you have a family? Do you have kids? What do you like doing in life? Do you like to travel? Great. Where have you been? Okay, cool. 
Uh, both of you guys went to Columbia last year. Awesome. Tell me about that. Where'd you stay? What'd you do? You know, who got drunk more than the other, right? Like <laughs> what, what's the story of life there? As Carl said, is there a sports affinity, uh, uh, something that's relatable, right? You want to be able to rapport. Yeah. You want to be able to grab that and hold it. And then the next time you talk to them, call back to it. If there's something that's happened, or if you see a news article that ties to something they're interested in, just send it to them and say like, Hey, saw this made me think of you. Hope, hope this is going well and be specific. If I ever get an email that just says, hi, Adam, hope you're doing well. And then they've moved on. It already tells me they don't care about who I am and they haven't tied back to anything we've talked about. It's just very generic. Don't just say, Hey, hope you're doing well. Hey, hope you're doing well. How are your kids doing with this thing? Last time we talked, they aren't, you know, and, and there's something specific. It's tied in, you know, Carl, since uh, quarantine started, he's, he's taken up a lot of cycling again since he's been home so long. Carl, how many miles did you ride last week? Any, uh, any crazy weather that impacted it? And you're, you're being hyper specific. And then that person coming back to you is going to just really lock in on it. Super important. I know that one of the next things that I was thinking about doing, unless you guys think that this is not even necessary, as we are both getting more familiar with the, well, me, especially with the industry, is starting off with broker listings to just begin the taking a look at deals that are already out there, but also realizing that the, the best deals are not listed with brokers. Would you recommend that for to some of your newer students or even people who are just trying to get more familiar is start with the broker deals so you can look at their packages that they've put together and then move on to the other ones? Or would you say you don't even need that and to skip that? So, so there's this kind of the, the big advantage about broker deals is, you know, the business is for sale because uh, they've gone to a broker. Um, what we tend to find with brokers is brokers are really in the business of selling businesses to other businesses and they yeah. put huge premium valuations on there because they know that businesses can get leverage when, when they combine. So my golden rule is I'll only look at a broker deal if it's been listed for nine months. So it, if you want to go to brokers because it's the short path to getting some deal flow, um, qualify the deals out that um, that are kind of recent listings and then you complement that with uh, doing some direct approaches as we just talked about building a list of companies you like writing to them in a rapport building way and then also leveraging social media again in 1992 when when i started my career there was no facebook there was no linkedin there was no google there, there weren't forums and blogs and groups and all these different things you just called people up um, and so social media is just making networking, you know, a lot more efficient, you know, especially LinkedIn. It's a phenomenal tool. There's, there's so many groups on there that you can tap into. Um, and, and really, it, it's just covering the bases. It, it's, as Adam quite often says, it, it's taking, you, you know, lots of great shots on goal. Um, so, you know, don't focus on one particular method for doing deal origination. We, we teach tons of them inside of the program. But... Um, it, and it's doing, it's doing deal origination as well in, in areas where you're comfortable. Like some people are maybe a lot more introverted, so they might get a lot more success uh, leveraging social media. A lot of people, you know, like all four of us on the call, we're very extroverted. So, you know, we don't think anything of going to networking events and tapping people up. So um, it's all about what makes you comfortable, but it's diversifying yourself across lots of uh, different ways. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think, I think just one thing to remember about brokers or any other intermediaries, you're not just negotiating with the seller. You've got to keep a third party happy, right? So you've just added to the complexity of the process. 
to me, it's a little bit of tortoise in the hare situation, right? The hare is the broker deal. You can get a ton of listings really quick. And as Carl said, you know the company's for sale. And so that's a, it's a, it's a way to jumpstart into looking at listings. The challenge is you're now working through someone who controls the relationship with a seller in most cases. And you've lost the ability to, to really connect with them and understand what they want. Because now you've got someone who, who impacts the deal structure because they need to get paid. They're not doing that for free. And that's going to have any incentive for the creative deal making either. They want, they don't, they want as much. Yeah. They want someone who's going to write as big a cash check as possible so they can hit the door. Uh, So yeah. Well, one of the things I know that uh, from this private message here, I know Carl's got a hard stop right now. I want to, I want to respect your time, Carl, if you need to jump off. Sounds like you may have something else. Uh, and then Adam, if you want to stay on for a few more minutes, we can wrap up and you can talk about a handful yeah. of the uh, other resources you've got. But Carl, thanks so much for, it's always fun to see you Thank and you. chat with you. I get so much out of our conversations and I just can't tell you how much I appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, buddy. Just a little quick story for you that the, the picture you and I took when we met in San Diego yeah. was my most liked Facebook pic of 2019. <laughs> Gee, that's because I went to Fiverr and I bought like tons of things. <laughs> that's why. All right, I guys. Catch you guys Mar- later. Marketing right, 101. See you, guys. So, yeah, that's great, Adam. I, I appreciate that because my, my thought process there was – not so much to look for deals there, but to familiarize myself with, because I know the one, the one good thing, not only do you know they're, they're for sale, but they've actually taken the time to put together the financials and the packages. So yeah. So you've got to real familiar. Yeah. So there's limitations to that, right? Yeah. Nothing you see. And we call, you know, their information memorandums or yeah. they, they've got a bunch of different names for them. Um, but all those packets never trust the numbers in them never trust the descriptions in them. You've got to ascertain everything on your own directly with the seller in some capacity. For example, financial statements, it, they're all transcribed by and large. So that's someone messing with the numbers. It's not coming straight out of an accounting system. You, know, you need to verify that. I would never even put an offer in on something if I, if I didn't have that ability to do so. so you're uh, saying so if you're going to do the work anyway, don't just waste time with those. Like go to the yeah, ones. That... And I'm not saying they're all bad. I just, you know, we see it a lot with, with our students. They're just like broker centric. They just want to browse bizbysell.com and businessbrokers.net and just, you know, all the, the, the broker type sites. And it's like, you're missing the biggest opportunity out there. And that is that this is a psychological game, not a raw numbers game. And just, blitzing IMs means you're just wasting a ton of time on stuff that's going to be hard because how many of those people are you going to build a real relationship with and go to consummate a deal, right? Like that's, you know, that's actually what you're looking for. You know, the, the end line isn't the number of leads you're dumping in your funnel. The end goal is to convert and actually buy the company, right? Um, you know, if, if I had a sales funnel, speak digital marketing for a minute, right? What kind of sales funnel would I rather? Would I rather one that's going to take 10 leads and get me one sale or a hundred leads and get me one sale? Yeah. 10 and one, obviously. 10 and one, obviously. Right. Because I can work on scaling that a little bit more appropriately and my acquisition cost uh, is significantly less. And people are like, well, I'm not buying anything. 
right? If we're sticking with the marketing, you're not buying anything, but it's an opportunity cost. You're spending time on 90 deals you don't need to spend time on and that aren't necessarily gonna come to any sort of real fruition. And so for me, less is more. That said, Carl already said one of my catchphrases, it's, it's about number of quality shots on goal. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're really good at deal making, you might close one in 10, one in 15 opportunities, like real opportunities. The reality, it's like a one in 20 game and that's just normal. So you've gotta be out there like really hustling and pushing uh, and you know, it's limited scale, right? It's hard to get st statistically significant on that in an in a individual basis, but I would always, every single time, prefer quality shots on goal than just any shot. And broker route gets people into that any shot because uh, you're just dealing with people who have other economic interests. You know, I'm not a big fan of buyer's agents. So people who go out, because often they're just going and finding broker listings and bringing them to you. So now I've got four parties involved and that just gets even more complicated. Listen, build a relationship. As Carl was talking about, social media has made this incredibly easy if you're willing to put yourself out there, right? Again, you wanna represent yourself to some degree. You guys are smart, savvy people, speaking about you two especially here. Like leverage what you've got. You've got great presence, you've got great communication skills, you've got great industry knowledge uh, as a team of buyers. So leverage that, poke around on LinkedIn, find people in your space. You know, you know both geographically and, and nationally who's doing what you're doing to some capacity. Start there and effectively create your lookalike audience yeah. <laughs> and go from there, right? I mean, that's, you know, uh, it, it, to me, that's the easiest way. Build, build a network, right? Carl and I are all about building a network with four types of people, accountants and CPAs, wealth managers, financiers, so banks and lenders, uh, and, and attorneys, right? Those four people, when someone wants to sell a business, they're gonna tell those four people, right? They're gonna tell their bank, because hey, things might be changing with the business relationship. They're gonna tell their CPA, because what am I gonna have to pay taxes on? They're gonna tell their attorney, so their attorney knows, like how am I legally protected and all that. And then their wealth manager is definitely gonna know because that dude's looking for the, the big check uh, getting deposited into the he account, can manage, he manage it. it so he can make more fees on it. So those four people all have vested interest in business transactions and they're constantly talking to their own customers and clients. Uh, and so it's, it's just, it's important to be able to, to network and to build that out. You'll get far better deal flow from that. Have you, have you done anything specific to build out? I mean, because it's easy to build a relationship with one of each, right? Because a lot of times we have, a, as entrepreneurs, we have a CPA, we have a financial advisor, we may have an attorney, et cetera. But as far as building a bigger network with those people, is there anything proactively you've done to um, expand that circle beyond? Yeah, just so every one of those four people has their own networks, right? So it's right. kind of that bigger network effect. So your CPA is going to know a bunch of banks, going to know a bunch of attorneys and going to know a bunch of wealth managers. So you talk to your CPA and you tell your CPA, hey, here's what I'm looking to do. Do you have any recommendations of anyone else in these three categories that I can talk to and, and network with? Then you do the exact same thing with the next person. You talk to your attorney and say, hey, do you know any CPAs or wealth managers or banks, I should go talk to you. And you go to I your wealth manager. That. And so like, you've just taken your four direct connections and assuming they each give you one more connection, 
for the other three groups, right? A CPA is giving you a bank, a, an attorney, and a, and a wealth manager, right? So you've just added three times four. You've just added 12 more parties into your network, presuming there's no overlap, right? So all of a sudden you went from four to 16 people in your network. Um, now you've got to do the work to reach out and build the relationships and, and you're going to find one path will be more successful for you than another. And you'll tend to lean and start working in that way. But it's, it's all about the conversation. You know, I know, uh, so last Monday, generally every Monday, uh, Carl and I do mindset Monday for people in dealmaker wealth society. So we go live on Facebook and last week we, uh, we challenged people. How many conversations can you have with either sellers or intermediaries, which are those four groups we just talked about, and then brokers, et cetera. How many conversations can you have in a week? You know, the highest person who's in that group hit 22 conversations from Monday to Friday. Nice. So think about that. If you were even able to do a quarter of that, say you do five a week, five conversations a week is 250 conversations a year if you take two weeks off. That's a lot. If you can't find some gold sifting through that filter. Yeah, uh, and exactly. And people say all the time, the time, the time. These aren't three-hour conversations. These can be simple relationship building, 30, 45-minute conversations. And then the key for you to is follow up, right? Again, I'd rather have 10 to 20 people who I'm their first call when something comes across their desk in that space than 150 people who don't really know who I am, except that I reached out to them once. You Sorry. want real relationships. So like if you got that network now of 16 people, you probably don't need that much more provided you're constantly evaluating if they're the right network for you, right? You're gonna sub some people in and out. But the idea is like build real meaningful relationships. If someone's like, man, I need a really smart guy for some consulting stuff. They might not even be able to talk to you about an acquisition, but now you've built a, a business development arm. If you're say a marketer like yourself, Brad, where they can plug in, or they already know you've got an IT services company. They're going to have clients who are frustrated with their current providers. So boom, you've added business development to your existing platform already. So there's other interstitial like benefits from building these relationships because you're simply taking someone else's client base and turning it into your client base and your network. That's the power of that kind of network effect. It's a long, that's so story. strong. One of the things I love about that is that that is one of my personal superpowers is uh, relationships, access and relationship development. It's one of the things that I feel uh, very comfortable with. This podcast is just an extension of what I kind of naturally do, which is like, I love to have conversations with people about topics I'm interested in. So I, you know, made a business around it or a uh, business feeder. Uh, but I love that the fact that it's also, it's psychological. And, you know, when it comes down to the numbers, I've oftentimes let myself get a little bit, I mean, even though I have a finance, finance background, it's, this is not, the spreadsheets and stuff are not my comfort zone. And that's, uh, and that's something you can outsource, right? Like, like it's all about building your team. Uh, if you know what you're good at, great, Brad, you're a home run on the relationship side, but uh, you're weak on the, the spreadsheet side. Man, rip backwards into say, this is who I'm asking to be a part of yep. my team to do this. And if that yep. person's a good fit, you just bring them along with you, right? This is a matter of like, listen, let's build an ecosystem of a team. You know, uh, Carl and I talk about this all the time. We see people get a little funny around it. I'd rather own a small piece of a company than 100% of no company, 
right? So I think that was a Rockefeller quote too. Like yeah. I'd rather have like, uh, I think he said, I'd rather have um, uh, 1% of a hundred people's efforts than a hundred percent of my own or something right. like that. Yeah. The idea is that like, you round out that team, you round out that support work and everyone has their own networks. Everyone has their own network effect. And within the kind of core circle, you've got most of the relevant skill sets ticked off, ready to go. So you've got operations, you've got financing, you've got marketing, you've got kind of core skill sets all aligned and in the right direction. Then boom, flip the switch. You're ready to go. Everyone's doing their thing. And as leads come in, you're evaluating it and you're running it through the mill and everyone's in a better place for it. Uh, and you're off to the races of building your own kind of business empire. Well, and quite literally, this is one of the benefits of like a deal and I like, so I've got more deal acumen and experience than he does, but he's got the operational experience and industry knowledge that I don't. So I'm starting personally to, you know, starting with a deal to utilize that. And then, you know, I've got advisors, I'm sure a deal does. And we're in the process of doing the, that exact same thing as, you know, it's, it's a team. This is a team sport, right? Very 100%. It is, it is a massive team sport. Yeah. Now this is fantastic. Speaking of team sports and speak, you know, every team has a coach and uh, has people who, you know, help the team uh, get better. This goes back to some of the resources that you and Carl have put together um, in the beginning. I'd love for you to take this moment because I mean, you guys have just absolutely crushed this uh, interview and just being so transparent. And uh, I, I don't think there's anybody who's still listening who thinks that these guys don't know what they're talking about, right? So talk about Dealmaker Wealth Society. Um, as a member, I can say that I'm a, I'm a big fan of the resources you guys have put together, but I know that there's some stuff that I haven't even seen uh, from Prox Capital and from the, yeah. from the online stuff. For anybody who's like, all right, I'm ready to, I'm ready to go down this path and begin this journey. What do you have for folks? Yeah. So, uh, so real quick, uh, trainwithcarl.com slash, uh, bacon appropriately tagged for you again, yes, trainwithcarl.com forward slash bacon. Uh, if you go there, you can, you can, you can download our free business buying blueprint. You know, what that is, is it simply walks you through the, the 10 steps of how to do this using other people's money uh, and, you know, happy to have people come involved, get involved with that. Uh, if you go to dealmakerwellsociety.com, you know, you can check out all our resources there as well. Certainly sign up uh, to get on, to get on our email list. Carl and I effectively are just trying to teach as many people as possible. Uh, and whether we're, whether we're on YouTube live, Facebook live, or any of our uh, kind of Facebook pages and things like that, our goal is to just educate, uh, beyond that, you know, we've got a couple of primary courses and, you know, there's ways we can connect with you if, if you want to, you know, download that guide from there is, is the idea is, you know, Dealmaker CEO, that is the, the core training system uh, that Carl's put together. And that is what you've gone through, uh, Brad. And that's, that's soup to nuts, everything you need to know to, to be able to buy a business. Uh, from how to find the deals, how to figure out what deals to find, putting offers together, figuring out financing, the closing process, negotiation process, all of that, all the way through the first hundred days post acquisition. Um, uh, and then beyond that, we do have group coaching that sits above that Dealmaker Academy. Um, and that's all the Dealmaker Wealth Society stuff. You know, our goal is to build an army of dealmakers that are buying small businesses. That's, that's our goal, right? 
it's, it's a mission. Uh, our real focus uh, in terms of, again, wealth creation is what we're doing in our private equity group. That's Prox Capital Group. Uh, Carl and I, as you said, Brad, we, we co-founded that last year uh, and we invite people, we call them deal originating partners. Uh, someone just yesterday coined, uh, coined them DOPS. So uh, I guess I've got to call them DOPS from now on. But uh, our deal originating partners, you know, what they do is they go and find deals uh, they leverage aspects of the Dealmaker Well Society training to build those relationships and things like that. And behind the scenes, what we do is we do the heavy lifting, right? So what you were talking about, that person or group to actually analyze the financials. We have a whole deal uh, analytics team where we're analyzing the company, structuring deals, putting offers together, and working to help those partners close deals. And in exchange, we, we share equity in the company post-acquisition. And then post-acquisition, our goal and the team we're building is designed to then grow and down the road exit every one of those acquisitions in some capacity. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's, that's what we do and, and we're excited by it. Uh, you know, my dream is to, to grow that to where we can, we can be closing a couple hundred deals a year through, through wow. Prox. Uh, we've got a ways to scale that up uh, since we've just started, but, you know, we're looking forward to it. It's, uh, you know, we're leveraging the, the, the kind of model, there's people who want to do it themselves. That's taking the training course and really digesting it. And really that's, that's what they need. And they've got the tools to do it. Then there's people who want to kind of do it with us and to do it with us is the group coaching where you're watching how we analyze deals and do things like that. You're still going out and doing the deal on your own. You've just got that resource of kind of shared mentorship. And then beyond that to do it for you is effectively procs where Prox sitting outside of Dealmaker Well Society. That's where, again, you're plugging in deal flow and we're, we're focused on really being the heavy lift in, in evaluating the deal, analyzing the deal and uh, closing it and growing it. So. I love that. And what's so strong about that is for, as I mentioned early on in this, where it can get overwhelming if you feel like you're, you have to learn all the nuances of acquiring a business, doing due diligence, the legal, the negotiation. I mean, not to mention just to reach out and getting the uh, fish on the hook, you know, reading yeah. them in is, the, is another thing. And um, it, it's super cool that it's not just an online program here, do it yourself and learn, et cetera. It's well, learn enough to get something on the hook and bring them in and we'll do this thing together. We'll analyze the deal for you. We'll help close it and you can be a part of it. And it's such a great way to, uh, learn while you're earning and, and, and just realize, yeah, you've, you've got a team built in. You don't have to build it all from scratch unless you want to. And I, I think that's really yeah, exactly strong. it's uh it's, it's buying the Tesla, not building it in that case. Right. We've, we've done the hard part. Uh, it's kind of capturing the multi decades of experience that Carl and I have. And, and, uh, and then ultimately the team be, beneath us that, that we've built out. I mean, uh, we've got an in incredible team. I mean, these are people who've done just hundreds of millions worth of deals and understand what it takes to, to, to appropriately analyze a deal. And again, it's frustrating. And I know people who, who have gone through the acquisition process, uh, it's very doable. It's, it's something that, you know, you can go through the, the training program itself and absolutely go out and do it. We've had people who have done that. Uh, they've done nothing more than take the program and, and they've closed deals and been really successful. Others have elevated to group coaching and also been successful. We just had a student close a deal the first week of May. This is middle of COVID, right? And uh, $8 million a year company. 
um, and uh, closed it and uh, put none of his own money in, was able to finance it appropriately and uh, fabulous opportunity. The guy's life is forever changed. He's a, you know, he's a salesman making very low six figures, like 100, 120K a year. And uh, he more than 5X his income uh, in one fell swoop, right? That's, that's, a, that's a hell of a way to, uh, to expand your, uh, your, your net worth. And you know, people think about, oh, that's great. He grew his income. Well, but he, he, he bought an asset that's grown his income effectively in perpetuity up until when he sells. If he yeah. can continue the business on the trend it is, that's every year, every single well, year. And you know, that, that brings up a, a concept that, that uh, I, I could talk with you forever. So we'll, we'll call this, <laughs> I don't want to keep you on the phone forever, but I can continue down this path. But I, years ago, I read a book. Have you ever heard uh, MJ DeMarco's book, uh, Millionaire Fastlane? No. It's a really good book. And I think you would also I'll, uh, I'll make a note. Cool. But it's also really about this concept of um, like, listen, if you, I'll, I'll pull apart a few of the concepts that I really liked. One of them, he goes, a lot of people think that get rich quick doesn't exist, but they're confusing it with its evil cousin, get rich easy. Get rich easy rarely exists, but get rich quick does, but you have to sometimes redefine what the term quick means. So quick doesn't mean necessarily overnight, but if for instance, you start a business and work on it for five years and get it up to a point where you can then exit it and sell it for $5 million or whatever. Did you get rich quick compared to the person who worked for 40 years and saved and slaved? Well, yeah, but then, so he, number, the first thing he talks about is the, uh, the thing that allows you to get rich quick is usually an exit event. Like it's that event where you're getting paid multiple years uh, of income all at once. But then the other thing he does talk about is acquiring something where if, if you want to get rich quick, A, redefine what the term quick means, like expand it out a little bit, be realistic. But yeah, if you can go buy something that automatically, like you just said, 5X is your, your income, but then is an asset that can grow a lot in value that you then have the ability to exit for another 5X, um, it might not take five years, but even if it takes five years, that's pretty damn quick to get yeah. millions of dollars in the bank. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you, you take someone in this particular situation who went from, a, you know, again, a 120K earner to his consolidated income between his business and uh, his, his day job still that he hasn't quit. You know, he's probably going to be making somewhere in the six to 700K a year range. I mean, that's incredible. Not bad day at the office, so to speak. And he's only working for one fifth, one sixth of that, right? The rest of it's coming in off of the asset he owns. Um, and, and the idea that if, if he just holds that company for that same five years you talked about, he's paid himself an extra $2.5 million or more up to 3 million, depending if he's grown it or anything like that. At that point, he owns the business completely free and clear. He's got no debts in it. He doesn't own the, the person who he bought it from any money. If he then goes to sell it and if he's grown it at all, he's then talking about another multi-million dollar windfall. So if you say at the end, the last day of that five years, he sells it for $2 million in a span of five years, he's generated an extra $5 million of cash to him personally. And this is someone who in that same five year period of time, if he didn't buy the business, he would have made 600 grand, right? So he added $5 million to his income in the same five year period that he would have only made 600 grand. That's a lot of money. 
you've 10 X, you've 10 X your earnings in that period of time. And it's all about taking action, taking those steps, like starting the journey. Um, and it's an incredible story. We've got, we've got someone who he actually works with us uh, as one of our coaches in Dealmaker Academy. You know, this is a guy who's gone from not necessarily being able to feed his family because the business he did own, he owned a small little uh, accounting consulting practice, a change in the regulations. He lost 70% of his clients overnight um, because uh, of what happened. He's, he's UK based. Um, and so he's pivoted. He now owns a portfolio of companies and he's elevated to where he's making nine figure consulting for equity deals. Uh, and his personal takeaway is going to be in the eight figures, right? Wow. I mean, that's life-changing stuff where four years ago, this is a guy who was introduced to Carl through a Facebook ad and, you know, took the, took the opportunity to actually, uh, you know, learn and grow. Uh, he was actually just sending me messages today. Uh, he's got a really interesting opportunity and wants to figure out uh, how we can do it. It's a company that does $100 million a year in revenue right? This is, this is a guy who's gone from, you know, sitting on the tube in London, wondering how he's going to move his life forward to now a year, four years later, and he's having conversations around uh, whether or not it's feasible to buy a hundred million dollar a year company, right? Like that's a, that's a paradigm shift mentally and operationally. Uh, you know, this is the, he went to a resort in Africa. He's from Africa. I went to a resort in Africa. I loved it so much. He was there for a few weeks with his family. He bought it. He just bought the resort. Right. So like, like these are people who take action, right? These are, these are people who, who are willing to commit to learning the process and actually moving forward. And, uh, you know, I know we've talked before, Brad, about that kind of action element. It's like, once you've got the commitment, you've got to put that one foot in front of the other and take action. And I, I couldn't stress that enough for anyone who's listening. And like, if you think growth through business acquisition is important and relevant and will change your life, you've got to push forward with it uh, and take action. Yeah. Uh, you brought up something right there that I think really sums up the entire thing also with this guy. Cause it, I, I see this, which really more than anything at its foundation, it's just creative deal making, right? Is it's the ultimate evolution of the entrepreneur because as people, we typically evolve from, you know, employees to sometimes like freelancers and solo entrepreneurs, and then even a business owner. And then oftentimes as a business owner, we kind of stall out there because we're so busy running the business and we stop evolving and entrepreneurs like evolution, learning new skill sets, pushing what's possible is what got us to where we're at. And granted, some will try to evolve just by scaling their existing business. But as we know, that's hard to do. And there's not that many businesses that actually scale. In fact, if you look at the number of businesses that are doing more than $10 million a year, it is insanely small compared to the overall number of businesses, which means scaling is hard work, especially just taking one business and just scaling up customers. But this is really that next step, which takes you out of your comfort zone, forces you to learn new things, which I believe causes you to also be a better business owner. When you learn to, to look at a business to go, okay, if I come in here, like this is how to look at numbers. This is how to look at financial statements. This is how to improve a business. If you have your own business, it just makes you better at that. But it also, it's also forces you. 
just, Go just ahead. to interrupt there, it forces you to stop working in your business and start working on your business. Exactly. Most business owners, you know, they come in, they, they build their business to, you know, a million, two million, four million, five million, right? Whatever that number is. And then they kind of plateau and level off. It's because they've reached the limits of their own talents to some degree because they're working in the business. The moment you elevate and work on the business, Everything your changes. mindset changes, your perception changes, the, the way you evaluate the vision and strategy for that business changes, right? So something I tell people all the time, and this is specific to business owners, if you're not actively, and I would say employees as well, like high performers out there, like this applies to you as well. If you're not actively every single day working to replace yourself in whatever you do, you will never move forward, mm-hmm. period. And, agree and, more. That can be, and that can be hard, right? There's an emotional attachment. There's a fear of like, well, if someone does all the stuff I do, what am I going to do? Trust me, the world has a way of rewarding you with more responsibility, whether you like it or not. And so the, you know, you've got to approach it from a position of growth or abundance. And the idea is that if you're, if you've got that mindset of growth, you will always elevate, literally write a list of everything you're doing and permanently scratch things off the list, stuff you will never do again because you found someone in your team or who works with you or for you to do it for you. The only yeah. way you elevate is to, is to aggressively grow in that way. Uh, and in, for people who, who have existing businesses, right, they'll cap out because they've reached the limit of their skill set, and they're not necessarily bringing someone in to support the next step of the process, right? Very few people can be like a Mark Zuckerberg who has gone from coding Facebook at its origin to being the CEO and face of a massive, massive company. Like that is such a rare transition. You know, the more common analogy is the guy who's a mechanic. He start, starts in a trade school, learns how to fix cars. And then 20 years later, he owns his own mechanic shop, but he will generally only ever own that one shop. He's unlikely to own 10 of them because he doesn't necessarily have the capacity to think bigger and how to replace himself and scale out. So for anyone who's listening, if you've got a business, think bigger than what you're doing. That organic growth is hard, but if you're not looking strategically and how to roadmap a future where you're not running it, uh, it's gonna be very difficult to grow. Uh, And more importantly, going back to that get rich quick, idea is that you're not going to see your own liquidity event maximized if you do go to sell your company uh, because you're still working in the business. The multiple and the price I will pay for a business is much higher for apples to apples comparison if you, the owner, are not individually responsible for the life of that company. Oh, super critical. The second for me, I understood that concept of your, if you are too valuable for your business, your business is not valuable, things change for me. Uh, I mean, then I start thinking like, okay, well, if I die tomorrow, would this continue? Then I had to work for the last two years to make it to a point where I only work three hours a week and this business will continue no matter what, if I exist or not. So that, that's, that's, that's an amazing. Yeah, it, it's, it's all about your legacy in some capacity and your ability to create real wealth. Um, uh, and wealth translates to a lot of things, freedom, opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and for those who are employees, like people who are struggling, dealing with crappy bosses or anything like that, you don't have to 
put any of this stuff to the side and just say, well, I'll do it later. You can do it while you're still working. You have that opportunity uh, to work on your life. You know, you are the founder and CEO of you incorporated. That's it. You incorporated, you are the founder and CEO. And if you're not out there constantly working on the business of you and how you're going to scale again, whether you're a business owner or you're an employee, you will struggle mightily into kind of achieving that next level trajectory. So super important that you, you, you want and think bigger for yourself than you believe you're capable of. I couldn't agree more. And it is one of those areas that I constantly, I find myself in it's, as I said, it's out of the comfort zone of, of, oh, I've got this, but that's where I like. That's because I always know if I'm completely in my comfort zone, I'm not growing. And by learning these stuff and taking those steps and talking to sellers and moving things forward, I only grow not only as a business owner, but as an individual. And, um, you know, the last piece on that is this kind of information, even if you're not, if you're, if you're just a business owner and you don't have the desire to go out and buy a business right now, this knowledge of how to do it, just in case you stumble across, uh, a, maybe it's a competitor who says, man, I'm just, I'm just tired of this business. Like, do you know anybody who would buy it? If you have no idea what to say at that point, you may have just passed a multi-million dollar opportunity. But if you at least know that like 20% of it, of how to structure a basic deal or what questions to ask or how to skin that cat without you know, coming out of pocket on your own, you could be missing out on a tremendous opportunity, which is why I think learning the basics of deal making and acquisitions is so critical just in case. Well, and it's, it's just in case that opportunity comes across through the course of business, uh, you know, your competitors, your network, your supply chain, all of those things, right? It's good to have that knowledge. But if you're already a business owner, guess what? You're not going to still run that business when you die. So at some point between here and then, you're going to exit that business. So if you're not thinking now about how to grow and position your company for sale, which is literally the exact same thing you're thinking as a buyer, you're just looking at it from the other perspective. If you're not thinking about that, again, working on instead of in the business, then, then you're limiting your own value down the road. Uh, and it's just super critical that you're, you're looking at it from both sides. Knowing the skills of deal making helps increase the value of your own business by you positioning it for success down the road. And as those opportunities come in, you've got the opportunity to maximize them because you'll at least recognize them. And that's the, that's the critical part. I think that, and that's a, that is the most critical element right there. Man, Adam, I cannot thank you enough for uh, being a guest on the show today as well. And I love all of the materials you guys have put forth your, um, you know, making yourself available here to talk to myself, deal, and obviously all of our listeners about, uh, you know, just this concept and then go deep on, you know, the what, the how, et cetera. Uh, as you mentioned, I cannot recommend highly enough, like the various resources that you've put together for everybody. And you guys have graciously set up a really cool uh, link for folks. Train with Carl, that's C, Carl with a C, uh, and, uh, .com slash bacon. And there'll be a link in the show notes for everybody there. And also dealmakerwealthsociety.com is a, a nice jumping off point to just see everything you guys have got. Um, I know that uh, I'm looking forward to sharing with uh, you guys all of the tremendous success that Adil and I 
are going to be having. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how you guys do. Uh, kind of take your next steps, and uh, obviously, uh, I'm here to always uh, always help in any way I can for sure. Thank I you. appreciate that. And to all of my listeners uh, listening in, if you have connections, maybe you own an IT service or security business, maybe you know somebody who does, and maybe you understand that there could be an opportunity here to make a connection. Um, I am always just an email away at uh, askbrad at baconwrappedbusiness.com. Love to have any conversations with uh, you or anybody you know. And um, you can see we're approaching this from a very, you know, a, a very transparent uh, way. I don't, I don't think there's any reason to hide anything. We're looking for good deals and good businesses to buy and ways that we can add value. Um, Adil, thank you for joining in. Uh, and hopefully this has been a fun experience for you yeah, getting to co-host. Absolutely. This was great. Thank you so much, Adam and Carla. This has been uh, a lot of value. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, really our pleasure. Thanks for, cool. uh, thanks for, for everybody me. else. Uh, listen to this once more, go check out the links in the show notes and subscribe to the show if you have not already. And if you love this topic, there's a lot of other episodes I've done on this exact topic. And each one of them, I try to approach it slightly differently so that you're always learning something new. And if you are uh, in a business, you're not looking to uh, necessarily exit or acquire, but you have hit a plateau and you're looking for maybe a second opinion on what's working, what's not, feel free to hit me up at uh, ask Brad at baconwrappedbusiness.com. And um, Adam, I look forward to talking to you here uh, real soon. And you you as well, Adil. But thanks everybody for tuning into the show and I'll see you on the next episode. Cheers.